when you're running through, running through, running through, running through, uh, your amygdala is actually perceiving jumping as a threat. And there can be different triggers, you know. Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, just just a reminder, if this is your first time here, but the goal here is to mine experts. I hate to feel like I'm using them in that way, but <laughs> to, to talk to experts in mental health uh, and use this podcast to help myself and you and and use the tools that they have to improve our lives, you know, and our, and our own mental health well-being. Uh, this week, we are talking to Robert Andrews again, sports psychology wizard, worked with professional athletes, Olympic athletes, Simone Biles, uh, all sorts of just, he's, he knows his stuff. And I always have a great conversation with him, and my bucket is completely full after I talk to him. So in this podcast, we started with mental blocks. Uh, as a pole vault coach, as someone in the pole vault space and in the sporting space, I get a lot of questions about mental blocks, uh, and not in... And after talking, and as we talked with Andrew, you'll find out that they don't just happen in sports; they happen all over the place. And he gives us he gives us information on how it happens, why it happens, and how to navigate and overcome these mental blocks. And he gives you some tools that you can try at home. Without further ado, if you guys have trouble with mental blocks, the first fifteen minutes of this is going to be gold. The rest of it's also gold, but first fifteen. For sure. Right, let's Confucius said we have two lives, and the second begins when we realize that we only have one. We're all given one whole life. And when we find and break the barriers that are preventing us from living fully, we have an audacious attempt to improve mental health. One Whole Life with Sean Francis. You were just telling me you get a ton of emails about this too. I do as well. And it seems like no matter how much I talk about it, there's still questions about mm-hmm. run-throughs and what causes run-throughs and how to get out of run-throughs or, or mental blocks or things like that. Can you, can you just talk a little bit about maybe what causes them and then ways to... Wow. <laughs> how long do we have here? I know, <laughs> right? We're going to need a week at least. Yeah. It, you know, it's... Um... I've said this before, Sean, that I see it not just with pole vaulters, but cheerleaders, gymnasts. Uh, you see it, different versions of it with baseball and softball players, golfers. Uh, I've had basketball players that their brain just will not let them shoot a basket because they're afraid of missing and the consequences of what happens when they miss. It's always stress-related, and the stress gets it's called the diathesis stress model. So it's like we have a scale, and as long as the scale is balanced, you go up. But when you start adding stress onto the scale, eventually the, the, the stress hits a tipping point, and then the brain begins to perceive whatever activity you're stuck on as, as life-threatening subconsciously. It activates the subconscious mind and the limbic system, and the amygdala is really the part of the brain that assesses threat. So when you get a when you're running through, running through, running through, running through, Uh, your amygdala is actually perceiving jumping as a threat and there can be different triggers, you know, going from bungee to an actual bar is a trigger for a lot of jumpers moving up a pole, moving back a a couple of steps. Those, those are triggers that they're just fine, just fine, just fine until, Oh my God, it's a live bar. I have to go up a pole, the different feeling of the pole, bigger pole in my hands. I went from four lefts to six lefts or whatever it is. And it triggers the brain to go, this isn't safe anymore. You're running through. And sometimes it can be from an injury. 
Sometimes it can be uh, self-inflicted, you know, overthinking, what if, have to, don't, I'm going to get hurt again. I saw a teammate get hurt. You know, I don't want that to happen to me. Uh, trying to please parents, coaches, uh, trying to get a height for a scholarship, you know, whatever it might be. Again, the stress eventually reaches that tipping point. So the first place I always look is injuries. You know, have you broken a pole? Have you torn your ACL or broken an ankle in the box or something like that? Like we've talked about before that takes up the most space in the brain. Uh, And then we go looking at relationship with coaches, parents, teammates. Um, I hate to cut in here, but is it, so you start with physical injuries or being physically safe, right? That's that's step one. That's the biggest stressor that takes up the most space in the brain. Yeah. And when you're firing up the limbic system in the brain and getting the subconscious mind involved, it can actually dampen down the part of the brain that's about confidence and belief in yourself that knows how to jump. So that volume to that part of the brain gets turned down so that this protective part of the brain can fire up. Okay. And that's why, you know, you hear like I have pole vaulters that have coaches and parents say, why can't you just go up? (laughs) I don't get it. Why can't you just? Well, it's because their brain will not let them. So you can kind of look at it like an injury, right? Like, well, why can't you just run straight? Well, I have a broken leg, right? <laughs> in a sense, the brain's trying sense. to protect them. Yeah. Yeah. So in a sense, it's, it's like that. Yeah. So the pain it's, from like an, an physical injury can make you run different. It's not just them. the pain. It's the, it's the, so when you go through a horrific experience like that, like yeah. if I, like I've had, um, pole vaulters the pole launches them back and they land on their head right yep or they come down in the box and break their ankle or tear their acl or miss the pit or you know the brain starts taking pictures of the worst part of that experience i'm falling and i know i'm not going to hit the pit or i'm laying on the ground and everybody's looking at me they're standing over me i'm holding i'm laying on my side holding my knees screaming The brain takes pictures of those experiences and then it loads them up with emotion and pain and sensation and light and sound and pressure and color. It grabs all this information. So by God, it wants to remember it. So when you get ready to do that jump again, it fires and goes, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not going to let you look what happened last time you did this. Yeah. Because it's a a protective measure. Yeah. At the very core, like I've explained it and correct me if I'm wrong. I'm just checking my own answers here with you, but from an evolutionary standpoint it's to keep us safe alive and then i always joke like reproducing but we don't need to talk about the reproducing when we're talking about this part we can just talk about the staying safe and alive part right so it's the it's the sympathetic nervous system it's the limbic system it's subconscious programming all that fires that that's a lot of energy moving in the wrong direction when you think about brain power you know So, so physical safety is the first one. And then you were started talking about like, uh, stressors, 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 distractions. Like I have a magic question that I'll, I'll ask athletes all the time. And let's say they have a bad relationship with their coach, uh, a gymnast, a pole vaulter, you know, whoever it is, I'll say, okay, close your eyes. And if we could bottle up all of the energy in your brain, your, your mental, emotional brain, uh, mental, emotional energy and brain power, for accomplishing whatever it is you want to accomplish, how much of that energy is going into pole vaulting or gymnastics and how much of it is going into being afraid to make mistakes or protecting yourself from that coach's wrath or your parents' wrath, not to put it all on the coaches. Uh, but, but Sean, I get questions. I get answers like uh, 20% pole vaulting, 80% coach, 30% gymnastics, 70% coach. 
which means so much of their energy is like this in defensive mode. If that much of your energy is into protective mode, do you think your brain's going to let you run down a runway and jump up 12, 13, 15 feet in the air? Right. <laughs> yeah. Ain't going to happen. That's why the relationship, you know, you and I have talked about that primary triangle between the coach, the parent, and the athlete. That's why that's so important. If you get any interference in any one of those legs of the corners of the triangle, that's interference. And when the interference gets high enough, the stress gets high enough, the distractions get high enough, the brain goes, shut it down, ain't going to work. Yeah, stay safe. Essentially, that's what it's trying to say, right? Yeah. Stay alive. Stay at, alive. Its, at its core, its primitive level, it's stay alive. Yeah. So uh, I've done I've done a bunch of these podcasts now. And thanks for doing a third one. You're breaking mm -hmm. the records over here. But, <laughs> I love it, man. Yeah, I, no, love, I, I love could talking talk to you to for you. days. Yeah, same thing. <laughs> what I've kind of what I've discovered is it seems like step one is always self awareness. And so, uh -huh. do you feel like that's a big part of your job? Just going, hey, let's bring some awareness to where your energy is going, or where your thoughts are, or what's creating this um, interference that you've described. Yeah, and mindfulness, right? My, essentially, just yeah, mindfulness, bringing a mindful, being aware of what we're doing, what we're thinking, what we're feeling, what's going on with our behavior, and and most athletes aren't. They just do it. And they don't understand the impact that it has on their physical performance. So, yeah, you know, I've got these mind of a champion wristbands. I hang out. Yeah. And have we talked about how we use these. Yeah, we snap them, right? No, you don't snap them. Oh, I thought you were like, I thought you snapped them to bring them back into like the moment. No, some people do, but okay. you know, I'm not like that. But it's real <laughs> simple. You wear it for 21 days. And anytime you think a thought that produces doubt or erodes your self-confidence or creates anxiety or fear, you have to take the wristband off like this and then put it on the other wrist and then correct the negative thought into a positive empowering thought. Oh, wow. And I've had athletes say the first three or four days, they're changing at 50, 60, 70, 80 times a day. But it's that, that <laughs> wow. awareness that you're talking about. I had no idea my mind was that negative. Yeah. And then about day five or six, they go, oh, wow, I only switched it five times today. That's a powerful tool. And it makes a big difference. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And it makes a, makes a huge difference. So, so with these, what are some of the things that you do? I know we've talked about this in other podcasts, but it's, it's good to revisit. What are the, some of the things you do to get the, their energy going back in the right, right mm -hmm. spot to maybe get, flip the, flip the script from 70 to 30 to 30 to 70? No. Uh, well, mindfulness is a huge part of it. Awareness. You know, we can't change anything if we're not aware of it. And if an athlete's not aware of how negative their mindset is, they're never going to change it. But the wristband exercise puts it right here. Okay. You know, this is, this is part of the problem is what you focus on. Don't what if have to thinking, eliminate all that comparing yourself to others. Um, so Awareness would be the first step, obviously. And then we'll do an assessment that looks at the relationship to pressure and jumping. And we've talked about this before, I think, with that, that peak performance zone. What's the yeah. right amount of pressure and intensity for you to maximize your potential? And then we capture that. You know, what are things like when things are going really well? Well, I'm talking to the other jumpers and I'm loose and I'm relaxed and I'm cheering for them when they make a great jump. And um, I feel happy and my mind's clear and I'm just grateful to be out there. Okay. What are things like when you're struggling? Well, I get quiet. I'm not as talkative. I get a knot in my stomach. My legs feel heavy. I'm overthinking two completely different athletes. Right. Right. And then we look at, well, what are the triggers 
that throw that off. Well, I'm seeing one of my arch rivals just clearing heights, like just so easy. And it freaked me out because I didn't feel that good that day. Or a coach told me to go up on a pole I'd never tried before in competition. Or, you know, so you have to look at what the triggers are. And then how do you know things are changing? Well, I start biting my nails or I get obsessed about my grip or there's just, they're, they're real. I feel like I want to throw up can be real obvious, but most of the time it's subtle. You know, I've had athletes that say they mess with their eyebrows like this. Hmm. They really didn't know that that was a warning sign that things are changing. So awareness and then doing an assessment to help identify what that best athlete or who that best athlete is, what throws them off? How do they know things are beginning to change? And then we start teaching all kinds of tools and concepts to help them stay in that zone. But if there's injuries, trauma involved, things like that, then we do eidetic imagery, which is going back and re-scripting through the, the, the traumatic experience. And then we do EMDR, eye movement desensitization reprocessing, which is, I've been, this will be my 28th year of using EMDR. And I think it's the most effective trauma protocol on the planet. Wow. Without any hesitation, I can say that. Yeah. So what kind of things do you do with EMDR? Can you just give us a brief overview? of? Well, when I, before I worked with sports, I had people come to see me because they did, they had been in fatal and near fatal automobile accidents, uh, domestic violence, um, near death experiences at childbirth, mountain climbing accidents. So these people had been horribly traumatized <clears throat> and they came in to see me for that. And then it was in 2006 or seven, I was at lunch with my wife. And I just had this aha moment that all the research, all, all my own injuries, because I've had many, many injuries when I was an athlete, yeah. uh, the work that I've done with eidetic imagery and trauma and EMDR, you know what? That'll have injured athletes. Right. And my, it just, I just took a, a whole different path. And that's about athletes are about 98% of my practice now. Wow. About And what, what's interesting is post COVID, I would say about 60 to 70% of my practice now is injuries. That's insane. That's I think it's stress related. Yeah, that makes sense. Coming back after being off for, you know, a year and a half, a year, year and a half, whatever it was. So I'm seeing a lot of broken legs, broken ankles, ACL injuries, shoulder injuries, dislocated elbows, pole so, vaulting accidents. But with, with EMDR, like what, what is <clears throat> it actually, what, what are you actually doing? Like, is, is there, is it, kind of the same things we've been talking about where it's these specific set of tools and skills that you're giving them or what's different from e emdr or something you know, else? like we teach visualization and breathing like everybody in my field does but yeah. we're more of a a whole person approach you know we look at character and integrity and re personal responsibility you know i think those are important factors we really look at authenticity you know how are you showing up are you are you giving your power away to someone to fit in or belong? Or you're not speaking up when you need to speak up. So we really work on helping athletes develop what we call this authentic self. So they feel empowered. And because I've never seen a disempowered athlete do reach their full potential. Right. <laughs> That's a good point. But all of that is one aspect of what we do. But when something is taking up a lot of space in the brain, that's when we bring in the EMDR, the eye movement desensitization. So what it's doing is we use headphones, a beep, and a vibration in the hand, which is really smooth and effective, or we can use different colored lights, like two or three little lights on a bar that I have back there behind me. They track the lights with their eyes back and forth while they have a beep in this ear. So what we're doing is we're stimulating the right left hemispheres of the brain using light 
okay. eye movement, sound, or vibration, or a combination thereof. And we start by having them focus on the image of them laying on the track or on the field, holding their knee after they tore their ACL or um, uh, sitting in the stands crying if they know hide it at the state meet. You know, those are images that they hold on to. So we take the image, what's the negative thought, what's the emotion, how upsetting is it to you, and where do you feel it in your body? And then we start processing that. And I teach them the whole protocol and I can tell if they're ready for it or, or not. And if they're not ready for EMDR, there's some foundational work that needs to be done. So we bilaterally stimulate the right left hemispheres of the brain, which allows the limbic system that holds onto that trauma to open up. That information comes up and then it's filed away into different parts of the brain. And then the limbic system calms down and then we fire up the prefrontal part of the brain, which is about confidence and belief in yourself yes and with acls it's like three sessions you'll see a remarkable shift wow so actually that was one of my questions so what what is exactly happening when we process trauma like in the brain or the body <clears throat> or if if this limbic system is just hyperactive right mm -hmm. or and it, is processing trauma just creating a new script to say or is it uh, having a new outlook on what happened or like what what is well, all the above yeah okay but, but what's what's interesting about it is i do an injury assessment and there's a series of questions and i'll ask okay when you think about breaking a pole and landing on your head what image or images pop into your mind when you think about the worst of that well i can i hear the pole snap I'm laying on the ground with my head hurting. You know, there's all these images. With ACLs, there's pretty typical ones. The pop is always one. Well, I'd yeah. say about 95% of ACLs, it's the pop. Sometimes they say, I didn't even know I tore it. Um, uh, laying on the field, holding my knee, sitting on the sidelines watching, finding out I needed surgery. These are all specific images, right? Yeah. And so once I do that assessment, you know, and they're going zero to 10. How upsetting is it? Eight, nine, 10, nine, eight, you know, very, very upsetting. Where do you feel it? My chest, my stomachs, you know, it's very, it stimulates the limbic system. So it, it, it can get upsetting when we're just doing the assessment part. And then when we finish, I'll say, all right, tell me what you had for dinner six weeks ago on a Tuesday night. And they look at me like I'm crazy. And I go, I don't have any idea. And I said, but look how vivid this information is from nine months ago when you hurt your knee yeah, or a year ago or two years ago or six months ago, because it's stored in a different part of the brain. Okay. So when we're treating trauma, we're trying to, we're, we're not trying, we are, we're helping the brain, the nervous system and the body send that information to the same part of the brain that's holding dinner from six weeks ago. Gotcha. So you're, Doesn't that make sense? Yeah, you're essentially putting it into a different folder, right? Like if we were, right, yeah, exactly. Because yeah. so, these folders get full. So it's a great metaphor. So if we look at if we look at all of life or all experiences, if we, do you, I'm trying to say this without being wrong, but I, I I'm okay if I, if I'm wrong here. But is all experiences neutral? Like they're all in the same playing field? It's just what folder you put them in that creates the uh, emotion and response to it so if it gets stored in the limbic system folder it's like whether it's petting a cat or a pole broke right like if you mm -hmm. pet a cat you might be might create a fear of cats if it's in the limbic system folder right but if you can move it well over, well like... that's a that's a really good question the, the brain files information away by association that's why you Correct. can take something that's 
has nothing to do with what the issue is, but because the brain grabbed it and put it in that folder, it can create interference. Right. So, so I'm just trying to Sesame Street this out a little bit so I can no, understand it. No, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> but so go ahead. No, it, it just is. Is that, I mean, all I'm going to, I'm just going to re-ask the question, I guess. Is that kind of how it works? Is that depending on where this information is stored based on mm -hmm. the experience that you had, that creates the emotional and physical responses that you have to that mm -hmm. experience in the picture? Well, everything is filtered through the amygdala and there's two of them back behind the eyes or like that big and everything filters through that. And it just scans our environment all day long, safe or threatening, safe or threatening safe or threatening so if two kids are out in the front yard playing with dogs and one is playing frisbee and having a blast and the other one gets attacked the next time they go see a dog in the front yard two different filing systems are going to get access right correct yeah because the amygdala goes this is a blast this is fun let's chill this is okay oh my god you got your leg bit had to get stitches and and the, they had to grab the dog and pull it off dogs are not safe so that's what our brain does all day long. It makes assessments, makes assessments, makes assessments. And then it takes it and puts it into this file or this file or this file. Okay. And and so with the EMDR, <laughs> it essentially takes the, the stressful event. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you've said this already, but you're putting it in different parts of the brain. So how does, how does that happen where you're allowed to, how does the brain, and maybe maybe can't answer this, but how does the brain allow that to happen where it goes, this was a threat for 10 years mm -hmm. or 20 mm -hmm. years, and now we can move it over here and everything's... Because it's held in the limbic system in the brain, right? Right. And that keeps the sympathetic nervous system activated, which is that fight, flight, fear response. And the more intense the trauma, the more those types of traumas are reinforced, the stronger that imprinting more energy goes into that system, right? Right. But bilaterally stimulating the right left hemispheres of the brain. Oh, that makes sense. Opens the limbic system up. And so when we're doing EMDR, they're, they're processing along. We start with the negative image, the negative thought, the negative emotion. Where do you feel it in your body? How upsetting is it? And then they start processing. Yeah. And a lot of times they'll go through it chronologically. I'm running down the field. Okay, let's go with that. And they'll process that. And then they'll say, uh, I planted and I felt the pop. Okay, go with that. I'm laying on the field, holding my knee. I can see the trainer say ACL. And, and, and it, I let them run for about 50 seconds or so. They're just tracking, right? Yeah. But if a lot of emotion comes up, I call that the train going through the tunnel. Yeah. We've got to let the train get out on the other side of the tunnel before we stop. And it, it, it's fascinating to see where they go. And when we finish, that's the neatest part is when we finish, I'll go, okay, let's check out where you are. Let's go all the way back. I call it the original image. I don't, I don't ever say, let's go back to the image of you laying on the ground, holding your knee. I say, let's go back to the original image we started with. And you'll see them go, well, it's there, but it's really faint. I can't even hardly see it anymore. Wow. So when you see that image now and you say, I'm never going to be the same, how does that feel to you? It's like a one. And when we started, it was a nine. Right. So when we get to that point, then we have a positive, we call it a positive, excuse me, <clears throat> positive cognition. And, it, and then I might say something like, uh, 
I'll come back better and stronger than I was before. I was like, okay, see some images that represent that for you and say to yourself, I'll come back better and better and stronger than I was before. Let's continue. So what we're doing is we're firing up the part of the brain that's about confidence and belief in yourself yeah. and excellence and mastery and passion after we've taught the brain how to process stress and trauma, fear and anxiety and all that. Does that make sense? Oh, a, a lot. So <clears throat> the processing trauma has been a, a little confusing for me after reading a bunch of the literature and stuff. You're like, because there's a seems like there's a bunch of different ways to do. Have you have you looked at or followed any of the psychedelic? research going on at john hopkins fascinated by it man i yeah, really am. same but uh, i just i've been reading about the mdma a lot for the last five six years and following it but they were saying when you give somebody mdma or on the street it's known as ecstasy but in a therapeutic setting i'd like to be very clear this no one's just going on the street and yeah, taking ecstasy yeah. or mdma um but in a therapeutic setting they they're giving it to um PTSD survivors and, and mm -hmm. things like that. And when they take it, they're able to look at the experience, but without the huge emotional reaction that, that they were having because MDMA allows you, it kind of neutralizes it a bit. Mm -hmm. So when I'm hearing what you're saying is it, it almost sounds like it's similar in a way where they're able to have the same experience, but they're activating different parts of their brain. And I don't know exactly what's happening, but they're able to look at it in a different way based on their brain behaving a different way. And then it gets stored mm -hmm. a different way. So then when they come out of this experience, um, the, the traumatic response isn't nearly as intense as it was. Yeah. They don't get before. triggered as easily. Yeah. It almost feels like it was dissipated throughout the brain a little bit. instead of. Yeah. And I don't know enough about it to recommend it to anyone. So I want to put that on the record right yeah. here. I'm not saying <laughs> go do this, but I am fascinated by it because I've worked with, uh, special forces guys, retired special forces guys <clears throat> who have done it. And they, like one guy told me that he drank, ate, whatever they do with it. And he, it, he said it was like someone put a poster board beside him and he looked at some of the traumatic experience of his life. And he said, he felt this wave go through his body. And then the next page turn and he looked at that and he felt the wave goes through his body. And the, the experience lasted like three or four hours. And he said, I came out of there a changed person and I've worked with a lot of Navy SEALs, retired Green Berets. I would have to say he might've been the most solid one of all of them. Solid in, in what way? Recovered. He Recovered. wasn't, okay. he didn't seem traumatized. He had a, a direction and a purpose in his life and he was grounded and he wasn't a drug addict or drinking like some of them do bless their souls because they have to find some way to manage the trauma that they've been through the losses that they've experienced. And that's why we're seeing so much depression and, and even suicide. And I've done research on why special forces guys are killing themselves at such a high rate. Yeah. You know? And so EMDR helps I, from what I'm hearing, what do they call it? Uh, what were the initials? Oh, MDMA. EMD. MDMA. Yep. MDMA. Yeah. yeah. I'm hearing that helps. I don't know enough about it, but I think there was something on 60 minutes just this last week about it. Yeah. <clears throat> I could go down. I could talk to you for hours about this because I'm fascinated by it, but yeah, they're doing a lot of psilocybin research and MDMA and there's ketamine clinics that have been opening up around. Yeah. That's what they were saying. And they had yeah. some guys that said, you know, I like and one guy said he tried to commit suicide five times. Yeah. It's and, sad. Uh, you know, the gun clicked, you know, he had a, a shell, in the, but it did click. And 
you know, somebody came in every time something intervened and then he took this and he goes, yeah, I've been through some bad stuff, but it doesn't, it doesn't drive my life anymore. Like it used to. Yeah. I mean, I'm incredibly fascinated by it. I've, I've heard with the psilocybin side of things, it's, it's like, there's all these grooves going down a snowy hill and it's your neural pathways. And mm-hmm. then when you take psilocybin, it like washes them all clean and you can almost get to. I heard someone over. else use that same metaphor. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and I was like, Isn't it that's interesting? kind of a cool way to thinking about it. Like the grooves are still there, but at least there's fluffy powder in them now. So you and can I think it might create grooves. some different grooves that, that can take you into more pleasurable responses to. Yeah. Cause they're gonna, they might go to the movies and see something that triggers them. Uh, like I used to be in the investment banking business and we had a guy that was a Vietnam veteran. He was one of our top salesmen. And his wife told me that one time they wrote a party on the 4th of July and fireworks started going off. She couldn't find him. And he was under the dining room table at their guest house, shaking and sweating. He went straight back to Vietnam and think about using EMDR or psilocybin or whatever it is to where uh, that was a firework, but there's not that, traumatic response that they're that they have been having for how many years yeah and that's why i like talking to you about this stuff because it's like they're if you understand what the what the root is or how it works there's a bunch of different tools you can use to Mm -hmm. help navigate this and i love that i i I, if if you're comfortable can we transition to this the suicide part i know it's kind of dark for a lot of people but you were saying you were getting a lot of emails and questions about that and i've gotten I think four or five in the last year of people going, I don't know what to do. Um, Someone on my team committed suicide. It's it's Mm -hmm. almost always from a coach and they're going, I want to protect these kids because um, they, they hear stories and I've, I've seen it too, where I hate calling it a copycat thing, but if one kid commits suicide, it can have someone else maybe go, Mm -hmm. I'm going into a dark spot too. I should do the same. And then it can create a lot of issues. So how, how do you navigate that? If someone contacts you about that, a coach? Well, before I want to, and I'll, I'll probably get teary eyed here about this, but two Februarys ago, one of my best friends took his own life. I'm sorry. And yeah, thank you. And, uh, you know, I got the call and like right after it happened, and it was horribly traumatic just to hear what happened. I wasn't there. And it was many, many states away, but I wasn't there. But I developed images in my mind about what this person told me about finding their partner and all this. And so I was sitting in church and they talked about a suicide support group. And I just started crying. I was like, I think, I think that's pretty telling. I think I need to go to that suicide support group. So I went a couple of times and the gift I walked out of there was that it's just a portion of that person that feels unlovable. Hmm. There's all these other wonderful, lovable parts, but that that un, that part of them that feels unlovable kind of starts taking over, and eventually it gets to a tipping point where they decide to take their own life. And I think that was the case with my friend. Um, and, and so I think as a preventive measure, you know, reach out, check in, connect. You know, so many times people are hurting, and Oh, I can't believe they took their own life. They seemed like they were okay. And, you know, go for walks with people. You know, I, we have neighbors in our neighborhood. We go for walks with, and we just talk, talk, talk about anything, you know, and I'm grateful that I have those friends or, you know, sometimes I have buddies that call me and I have two of my best friends every Wednesday morning at seven 30, we get on a zoom call and we call it our energy of success group. <laughs> and we've awesome. done it for eight years. 
eight years and we go anywhere we want to go. It can be about life. It can be about pain. It can be about our careers. It can be about a concert we went to see wherever we want to go. And we each get 20 minutes. And if somebody needs longer, we give them longer. Wow. It's funny you mentioned that because I'm doing that with this podcast now. It, for me, these became, I I love these, Mm -hmm. uh, but the, I it's so much kind of dark stuff, you know, like depressions and anxiety and mental health and all this stuff mm-hmm. isn't always uh, the happiest stuff. So I'm working in, I we're I'm actually doing it on Wednesday with my friends. We're like, we're going to sit down and just talk about anything we want to talk about just to kind of, cause you, and this came from you actually, when you were like, what fills your bucket? I was like talking to these yeah. guys, but they live on mm-hmm. the other sides of the country. So how can we do this? Ah, let's just do a podcast where we BS for nice. wow. an hour. So thank you for that. Like, You're welcome. And that, that's what we do. And we have it uh, this Wednesday and I can't wait. And I always hang up at 830 and it's like I come downstairs and I'm just on fire and laughing and my dog picks up on my vibe. And, you know, I'm just <laughs> it just sets the tone for the rest of the week. We should do it on Monday so I can ride that wave. All week. <laughs> right. You know, but, you know, we meet this Wednesday. But, you know, I years and years ago, I read. I don't remember what book it was, but it said, and and I know there's clinical depression and I know there's transitional depression that comes down through the generations. And there's research around that where like generations where there's been horrible, like the Holocaust or the Cameroon and Cambodia, there's research out that show that those descendants carry a tendency towards depression. And I'm not, I'm not arguing with that. I totally believe that. You know, I've had I've had uh, ancestors that have served in the Korean War, World War Two, World War One, the Civil War, the Revolutionary War, the War of 1812. And one of the things I noticed, I've done a lot of genealogy research in my family. Those that went off to battle died younger than everybody else. You know? Yeah. And so. Uh, don't get me started on genealogy. I'll talk forever, <laughs> but, but I, I just watch things like that, you know, and then I start thinking about what must they have gone through in the civil war and who didn't come home and who did and what did they lose and all. But I, I learned about depression and it said depression can be like our soul's way of expressing that there's an, a very important part of who we are that we're not expressing and integrating into our lives. Like I had a woman when I was doing like traditional psychotherapy years ago, uh, was a brilliant artist and in her marriage that didn't work. And so she put all of her artwork away. Right. And she came to see me and she was talking or she'd gotten a divorce and she was talking about, you know, the loss and da, 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 da. And, And she's, I said, well, what did you have to give up to be in that marriage? And she started crying and she said, my artwork. And she said, it just, I just so sad that I gave that up for so many years. I said, where's your easel and canvas and paints in my closet at home, get it out and paint your grief. And she came in several weeks later with this painting of blues and purples and greens. And it was unbelievable. It was, I was like, are you kidding me? And she goes, now I'm so mad. I said, well, go paint your anger. And she came in weeks (laughs) later reds and yellows oranges fiery you know and then she just kept painting and painting and she did exhibits in houston and new york and she's still an artist after all these years you know 
But there was that part of her, that artist part of her, that creative part of her wasn't being expressed in her life. And her depression was letting her know that. I've seen athletes who tend to see me and they're depressed and they don't know how to have their voice. They say yes when they want to say no. And somebody makes them the brunt of the joke and they laugh right along with them. Wow. And so we get them empowered and having your voice and learning about interpersonal boundaries with people. And guess what? The depression just kind of lifts away like a fog. Yeah, I heard Jim Carrey say it once that, and I know that's a weird way, a weird place to get it. But, you know, when you talk to or when you listen to people who have had depression and you've had it too, you can start to go. He, he, they get it you know like mm-hmm. there's this, this weird sense but he goes depressed almost means deep rest you just need deep rest from playing a character that you don't like to play anymore and he goes when he stopped playing jim carrey he's like jim carrey was a great character and that's how he described it jim carrey was a great character i'd go uh, on these talk yeah. shows and be this yeah. crazy guy and if you watch him now he's a lot calmer mm-hmm. <laughs> and you go well i i've heard that that happened to uh Deion Sanders, you know, prime time. Oh, yeah. You know, neon Dion and the gold chains and the dancing in the end zone. That was his persona. And he lost track of Deion Sanders and went into a depression, is what I read. Wow. And then when he started getting back in touch with Dion, I mean, look at what he's been doing at Jackson State. Yeah, it's you know? incredible. Yeah. And now he's going to what, Colorado, I think. You know? Yeah. So he got authentic and he empowers those young men to be authentic and, and heck with the, the prime time and gold change and, you know, just who are you absent of all that? Yeah. Yeah. Do you, I'd still like to talk about the depression thing. I just got a little sidebar here. Do you find it hard for people or even yourself sometimes to, because I've, I've read things too, where you play a different person in different society, societal groups a little bit. Right. Um, And everybody kind of does it. Like you're checking out, you're going to be really nice to the, the person who's, uh, you know, ringing you up or you, you play just, a, you perk up just a little bit. So has it been hard? For, I know you've told me in the past that you're like, I'm just going to be hundred percent authentic all the time. Cause it's way easier. Mm-hmm. But if you've been playing these kind of roles for so long, have you found it easy for people to check into one role or, or know what, who they are kind of like, as you said, with the prime time, you well, lost most track of the time stuff. it's, <clears throat> it's subconscious conditioning from our parents, our family of origin, our grandparents, our church, religion, coaches, school, life experiences, injuries, those experiences either move us towards the authentic self or towards the conditioned self. Right. And, and most people are living at least, at least in the United States anyway, are, are living what I call their conditioned self. And I use a person, uh, it's not a personality profile. It's a, it's an awareness profile called the core multidimensional awareness profile. Yeah. And it shows you how do you think you're showing up? How are you really showing up and how are you responding to stress and pressure in ways that feed that authentic self and move you more towards in that conditioning where you're going to be this person with this group and this person with this group. And I'm not going to rock the boat over here. And I'm afraid of making mistakes over there instead of, uh, you know, if you're a person that loves passion and connection, but you're holding that back because you're so afraid of looking stupid and making mistakes. And, you know, I see a lot of that with the athletes that I work with. Hmm. And that was actually a life-changing moment for me. And I I don't know if I mentioned this on one of our earlier podcasts, but uh, this is back, I think I was in my mid-20s or so. 
and I lived in an apartment out south of Houston here. And uh, we had a really neat group. We went out and did stuff and hung out together. And we had gone out the night before and I had a two-story apartment and I was out on the balcony and one of my neighbors walks by and she goes, hi, Robert. She, she had been out with us the night before. She goes, hey. And I said, hey, you know, in movies, when you see the, there's a flash and like. And a big zoom in, right? <laughs> well, it's, it, it's like you go to a different paradigm and then you come back. You ever, you've oh, seen that in movies yeah, sometimes? Yeah. I had that and I went, I'm this person with that group I went out with and I'm this other person at the gym and I'm this other person at work. I'm another person with my old friends I grew up with. And I went, which of those is the real me? Yeah. And then I set out on this mission to start showing up authentic and congruent in all those places. And it took some time and it was some hard work because a lot of the people who were around me were used to me being a certain way. Yeah. Yeah. I was, that's I started, what, what I was just going to say, that had to be hard for everyone around you, including yourself, right? Because... <clears throat> I would imagine, I would imagine for most people, if they decide to go on this, they're like, things are going to get better. I'm being my authentic self, but then your environment has to change because you're changing at the same time. So some of those people, you know, my, my best example is, is my buddy, Brad used to go to the bar in college and just buy everybody drinks. And he'd go, I don't know why I don't have any money all the time. And one day I just brought this awareness to him. Like, well, you just spent $300 on a bunch of people. Wow. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, they're all my friends. You know, I was like, I don't try it for two weekends. Just don't buy any of these people drinks. And he goes only about five of these people stuck around. I was like, well, that's that kind of telling, right? Telling. Yeah. yeah. And, but it was really hard for him. Cause I mean, that was painful at the time. Mm -hmm. but now he's like looking back, he goes, that was a terrible two weeks for me, you know, and, and mm -hmm. on like months after that. Cause he's like, <laughs> I thought I had 300 friends or however many it was. And now they were taking advantage of me for getting free drinks the whole time, or he was allowing that to, however you want to look at that. Mm -hmm. And he just goes, uh, now it's the best thing I ever did. Cause now I know who the real people are who want to be around mm -hmm. me instead of just want to drink. <clears throat> well, I found that people wanted to put, push me back in the box I used to be in. Mm, that would be hard. And they use like guilt or you think you're better than us or shame or who do you think you are? And I never thought I was better than anybody. I just started raising my vibration as a yeah. human being on the planet. And I got to where I just didn't match up with certain people. It wasn't because I was arrogant or better than it's just different morals and values and personal ethics and interest in life and, and ways of life. So we just didn't match up anymore. And, you know, I, you think you're better than all of us. I was like, no, that, that just tells me you don't really, you don't know me. Yeah. Oh, that's but it was painful. Me. You know, it was really painful yeah. huh. <clears throat> or you've changed and yeah, I have. Yeah. yeah. That's what people do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm writing an article right now for a online magazine about how uh, parenting teenagers and young adults, you know, <clears throat> and kind of the metaphor is that the universe is always expanding, right? According to science. Yeah. And we should be expanding right along with it. Oh, and wow. when, we, when we do, we hit interference, we hit resistance. And in life, that's struggle, that's pain or loss or disappointment or whatever that is. And it's in that friction where the growth occurs. <laughs> but if we expand and we, we, hit some interference and then we go back to that old comfort zone, we stop growing and mm -hmm. the universe just continues to move on without us. 
And that's where we experience depression and suffering and despair and loneliness. So, you know, we've really pushed our kids. This is painful, but we're going to love you through it because we want you to learn and grow. And in the article, I tell a real a story. Now, keep in mind, Texas cold isn't like no. <laughs> Minnesota cold. But when my son was real young, like in kindergarten or first grade, it was pretty cold for Houston. And I said, OK, let's go to school. Put your jacket on. I don't want to wear my jacket. Well, yeah, but you need to wear, I don't want to wear my jacket. And he, okay. So we hung it back up on the hook, you know, and got in the car and took him to school and he was young. So I walked into the class and his teacher is really cool. She goes, no jacket today. And I said, no, he didn't want to wear it. She goes, oh, natural consequences, huh? (laughs) And I said, yeah. So the next morning we're getting ready for school. What do you think he does? He puts on his jacket. Where's my jacket? Because he froze his tail (laughs) off the day before. Now I wouldn't do that at minus 20 in Billings, Montana, you know, yeah. or Minneapolis, but I, you know, I did it in Houston cause it wasn't life threatening cold, but, yeah. and there's been other instances when they've been older where this guy let them go learn. Uh, I, I love that the universe <clears throat> expanding. We need to expand with it. Like there on with these podcasts, there's been a lot of talk on growth and where that comes from. And mm-hmm. I, I don't know if you've heard this one, but I did one with uh, a lady who got in a traumatic car accident and half of her face was ripped off oh my god when she was uh 17 i think uh-huh. and she was alive to the whole thing but her jaw i, w- I won't go too graphic on it because it's in the podcast but her jaw was essentially off of her face and she she drowned in her own blood and then came back to life in, in the ambulance and this whole crazy thing happened and now oh. she's a professional stunt driver so instead of like being afraid of cars she's like driving <laughs> these things and um she does these events with big corporations where they can come and she teaches them how to drive these stunt cars. Like, let's go do donuts. Let's see how fast we can go around a corner in these really, really crazy fast cars. And she was talking to me about skydiving because I was going, there's just this moment where you jump out of an airplane for the first time and it's, you're forced to be in the moment because if you're not, you, you know, you could die, you forget to pull your chute, but you get to the ground and you immediately want to do this really terrifying thing again. Like you go up and you're like, I don't know if I should do this. I don't know if I should do this. I don't know if I should mm-hmm. do this. You jump out. You're like, let's do that again. So I was asking her like, do you experience that with your people? And do they want to jump back into a car and go hundred miles an hour around a corner and where everything's saying, don't do it. She goes like, they always want to. And her theory on it was, we usually grow at like this, this pace here, but when you're forced in those types of situations, your growth is sped up and it feels so good to grow that quickly that she she goes, people want to do that immediately again. It's like Mm -hmm. the best, the best drug you could ever find probably is just a sped up growth. Mm -hmm. And then she kept saying it, that usually only happens. And I'm only bringing it up because there's some parallels here where you're like, where you find that interference where there's this point where, um, you're forced to, you know, you're supposed to talk to that pretty girl you've been afraid to talk to for years and you finally do. And you're like on top of the world or, mm-hmm. or new jobs or, or something like or birth of a child is another mm-hmm. giant one for a lot of people. But yeah, the growth thing is, is fascinating. And it really think, is, isn't it? Yeah. <clears throat> and it, yeah. if you see it that way, it's just like a mentor of mine years ago said, we're given stress until we master that stress. Yeah. I love that. You say, you said it on every podcast and I write it down every time. And then guess what? The next stress comes along. That's one of my favorite quotes of all time. And in my family, and I've probably said this with you before, Sean, but it's in my family, we say, okay, if it's happening now, 
on some level, I've drawn this to me and I'm ready for it. How can I grow from the experience? Or I wonder what good will come from this. And those are just kind of how we frame things to take something that's upsetting or painful and, and mine the gold out of it. If yeah. You will. yeah. Yeah. I know I've talked about this and like, I always call those like a, a beautiful sadness kind of thing in a way like this is really hard, but there's a, there's a hint of gold in there that, that mm -hmm. you're going to be able to get. Um, so can we go back to the, the suicide thing? Sure. That was, that was a long side road I took with you. Um, apologize we tend to do that. I know it's, it's too fun. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it's it sounds like when when you were talking about it the first step is well and and i always have kind of called it opening the door allowing the door to be open for people to to talk if they have these types and so it sounds like relationship kind of building you know having mm -hmm. that but so if this does happen and even if the relationship part isn't there um what what can coaches do to the other athletes or is there's do you get do you, do you suggest getting them into a group to talk about how they're all feeling or do you suggest going to um, a, a therapist or the school counselor on at their, their schools? Or If, what, if what they you? feel like there's some red flags there, yeah, definitely the school counselor or a psychiatrist or a professional, something like that. And um, I talked to a, a college team last week about sports culture, you know, and I worked with some pretty cool teams over the years at very high levels. And I've talked to athletes that have won Super Bowls and lost Super Bowls and been on winning Olympic teams and losing Olympic teams. And um, it's a, it was a fascinating conversation. And then we did about a 30 minute Q and a after. Okay. And man, they were just, and then when I finished, they all came up to the stage. I was sitting on the front of the stage cause I'm not a walk the stage kind of guy. I like to go out and move around the audience, you know? Yeah. And I sat on the edge of that stage and one girl sat over here and another guy sat over here and we talked for another 15 minutes and it was more about their relationships within the team, mm. you know? And so I said, I told one of the coaches, I said, I'd like to come back in a week or so and talk to your team captains and just start giving them some ideas about how to better empower their teammates and create a more of a place of connection because we talked about tank filling like you and I have talked about in, in, yeah. the, in our other calls and and a great way for a team to do that is to do things together and if someone's left out knock on there and grab them and bring them into the into the fold so to speak but look for that that loner out there because that's a lot of times that can be a warning sign okay you know bring them into the mix connection you know at its essence don't you think we all want connect we want connection oh for sure yeah like I, when i when i think about mental health i think that's one of the first places i always look is like do these people have a good family environment connection with anything a dog mm -hmm. can even be something simple but yeah like mm -hmm. i i think a lot of growth comes from that so if we if i always go back to that growth idea it's like if you can connect with somebody your energy's music musical notes are just going to be stronger you know, you know speaking chords. of dogs during the pandemic I, I did zoom calls for what two years or something you know yeah my dog's vocabulary just expanded she understands everything <laughs> i say yeah you know vo vo voice tones inflections words you know i can just say whatever and she's she perks up and now she knows what, well, let's go out front. That means she loves to run around the front yard before we go to bed at night yeah. and say, do you want to go see Henry? That means Henry is across the street. That's the dog across the street. So, but the connection I had with her, you know, my wife worked at the ER center. So she was out in the front lines 
of the pandemic, you know, coming home every day. Oh my God, you wouldn't believe the line out the door. But I was at home alone, but I had Lexi and she's a wonderful dog. And that connection with her got me through that. Do you speak dog very well? I think I do. You think you do? I was just curious because I'm like, my dog knows a lot of English, but I don't I don't know if I speak dog as well as my dog. Can speak. <laughs> That's a funny, funny question. So, you know, um, as far as if a suicide does occur, because I think I know where you're going with that. I, I I put it out to a group that I belong. It's one of the EMDR group that I'm, that I'm part of. And I just put it out there. And one woman wrote back saying that's, you know, that's what she does. She works with a lot of grief and suicide like that. And she talked about um, candlelight ceremonies where you, you honor that person. She talked about sitting in a circle and telling stories from that person's life and your relationship with them. Um, she had some pretty cool ideas, you know, and if I have them written down at home, Actually, I think I screenshotted it. Do you mind if I take a second to look at some of them? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I just received a request to work with parents and neighbors of a young man who died by suicide and was told many people are affected. I have a specialty in facilitating community grief gatherings with sharing, writing, poetry, candlelight rituals, music, storytelling. Isn't that cool? Yeah. There's people out there that that go to a, a hurting team like this and. I'm glad I kept that. Yeah, really. I'm glad you kept that too. That's it's really powerful because I and I feel strange when people reach out to me because you're the mental health expert. I'm just get a guy who's I'm like a telephone, right? I'm you're just, a bridge, man. I'm a bridge. Yeah, I'm just a bridge. Um, so I never know what to say. And you know, people have asked me, "Would you come out and talk?" I'm like, I can only share my story. Like, I'm not an expert mm-hmm. here, but I I can do that or point you in directions of people like you mm-hmm. and they're like we don't know what to do we'll, we'll we'll take anything so just you sharing this is, is extremely yeah. helpful for a lot of people i think if it especially well, when, if it happens when my friend took his own life we had a zoom memorial service and uh people talk, he was very funny and very sarcastic and i told a story i, I was out in florida working with uh embedded psychologists and social workers for the green berets out there and we took a lunch break and they had a a food truck you know and i went to order i looked above it it said sarcasm sold here (laughs) and i just started laughing because that was my friend you know so i took a picture of it and i told that story you know i hosted the zoom memorial for him and i told that story and i told the story about uh skiing with him in lake tahoe right before he got sick and um how he made one change in my skiing that was it, it just changed everything for me. And my wife, we were different skiers. He just said, keep your shoulders pointed downhill all the time. Huh. You know, so I told stories like that. And, and, and he was the sport he was in. People got how, how important that was, you know, that yeah. he, what he coached. And, uh, but just the sharing, the storytelling, the laughter, the crying, it was so good for all of us. And I, I wish it could have been live, but it was during COVID. So we couldn't do it that way. So do you think that's, and I'm going off maybe on a little tangent or a rabbit hole here, but do you think when that happens to people, they, they don't feel safe, right? They have all these big emotions they don't know what to do with. So they almost like get, get smaller. Right. And they want to seclude and be by themselves when again, if you can be, and you feel alone when you do that, you know, just me being years and years and years of depression and going, I don't want anyone to hurt the way I hurt. So I'm going to get as far away from this group, which is the worst thing I can possibly do, which I've learned over mm-hmm. many years of this. So 
do you think that's kind of what's going down or a big part of it when people are feeling that way is like get together share this you're not alone you're all feeling similar things you can be angry you can be sad you can be you know happy they're not in pain anymore and you can share all of these things and and build that connection as you're kind of saying i do <clears throat> but you and i talk a lot about the world of the athlete right yeah what are athletes taught to do <laughs> just yeah do the work grind yeah, suck grind. it out yeah yeah when with the special forces military they, they call you know shut it shut the pain eat the pain you know and yeah. uh and that's kind of you know a sport like gymnastics go 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 hurt it doesn't matter go 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 that's getting better now <clears throat> but athletes are taught to be resilient suck it up don't let anybody know you're hurting push through keep it to yourself yeah and then life starts pushing in and pushing in but i gotta i gotta maintain that stoic front and then it pushes in some more and the pressure builds and builds and it pushes up that unlovable part that takes over that's what i think happens uh yeah that you're just saying that feels painful because you know, I've, I've, yeah, I've lived it probably as you have too you see it all the time well after i lost my friend and then i had another friend passed away from a heart attack a year and three months ago so it was like boom boom you know two of my closest friends and i went into a bit of a funk with it for sure i was grieving man I was just going to ask by, I mean, you're a mental health expert. You <clears throat> practice this stuff all the time. You help other people do it. Was it hard for you to do the types of things that you know are, are beneficial versus? Well, let's go back to my energy success group every Wednesday morning, every right. other Wednesday okay. morning. So I that's had a built you had in it. system. Yeah. Okay. And there were days where I needed 40 minutes of the hour and they gave it to me, you know? Yeah. And there's days where they need 40 minutes of the hour and we give it to them. So, I had that. I have a very supportive wife. I can talk about things like that. I have other friends that I can talk with. I had other friends that we, we shared those losses in common. Uh, but, you know, we had a memorial service for my other friend. And this might sound crazy to you or your viewers, but I'm, I'm tuned in on a different frequency, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and a couple of nights before we had the memorial service, uh, for the guy that died of the heart attack, right? It was at a Mexican restaurant. He lived in Mexico. He loves salsa, Spanish music, dancing, dogs, nature, wonderful, full of life guy. And uh, two nights before we had that service, he comes to me in a dream and he had on this real bright colored Mexican shirt, a glass of wine and a big smile on his face. And he goes, tell everybody I'm okay. And so I told his daughter and at that memorial service, she asked me to get up and tell that story. But I believe that really happened. You know, I believe on some level, you know, he, he came to me and paid me a visit. There might be people that go, that Andrew's guy, he's crazy, but it was so real and it moved the people that were there. I think it gave them some peace. You know, yeah. I know it gave me peace. Yeah. And my other friend that died, uh, I had a dream that we were like, we were riding up a ski lift together. Oh, and I wow. think that was his way of telling me that he was okay now. I wish I knew what those were. I I have a folder in my phone called Universe Moments because I don't know what else to call them. But there's probably about 30 of them in there now from mm -hmm. 10 years when I started this. And it's, I don't know how you feel when you get them, but I have get like these weird goosebumps. My heart kind of starts racing. And 
it almost seems like the world's going wow 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 and it's tuning in on like that moment mm -hmm. i don't and it's happened to me like i said probably around 30 times now and i just had one on the airplane about three weeks ago where this lady was talking to me and by the end my bucket was so full just talking to her and she was wow. she brought up about our uh her daughter committed suicide and the mental wow. health system was so hard to navigate mm -hmm. but she it didn't start that way it started how she had this great weekend with her friends and she like kept you know she was kind of handsy she was like grab my shoulders like you're not gonna believe what we did this weekend i went running for the first time oh, in 20 you she's know she's a connection lady connection, connection lady woman. yeah big time. yeah but i had that thing happened and i went oh man i need to pay attention like this this is one of those moments like why is this happening and i couldn't and again, I feel like if when I talk to people about this, they go, this guy's freaking nuts. I don't know. Like, that's not I get it. Yeah. I get it. I have it sometimes, Sean, where I can be talking to someone and it's like my whole head starts tingling. Wow. And it's the, it's the coolest feeling. And it's like, I just want to close my eyes, but I'm talking to them, you know, yeah. so I don't want to check out on them. But it's like, <laughs> ah, it's just this. It's I haven't had it in a while. But yeah. when I have it, it's like, I, I, OK, there's something going on here. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, I my message and again, this is why it's been really kind of tough for me is everything's pointing towards this mental health thing, like do more of this, do more of this, do more of this. And then when I do pole vault, it almost feels dead, you know, like I love the pole vault, but it's uh, I feel I, something's just I not in line that. there. Yeah, I, I wish I could that. explain it more. No, just I get it. You're good at stuff doesn't mean you should be doing it all the time. <laughs> but we did it for a long time. Yeah. And I'm kind of in that place now where injuries just working with injured athletes just lights me up and that's the vision i had 17 years ago whatever it was you know yeah yeah 17 years ago that's the vision i had and then i got into teams and organizations and perform and i still love doing that but my real i think my gift is helping athletes through the trauma of a traumatic injury and i'm moving more and more in that direction i have some great relationships with physical therapists and orth orthopedic surgeons here in Houston. And they send me their traumatized athletes and, yeah. and they know what they're looking at. They know when they see an athlete is afraid of getting hurt again, or afraid to do a certain exercise and physical therapy. And they give them my number and we get them through it and accelerate their physical therapy. And it's so yeah. rewarding, but when you narrow in on it, it's it, like you with mental health, you obviously you've got a calling there and I'm, I'm grateful that you listened to it. Yeah. I, it's hard to understand. Like, you know, it's, it's that faith-based thing. And I've been <clears throat> so sciencey for so long and log logistical that it's been um, like, all right, we're jumping in. I don't, I don't know what's on the other side of this, but it feels good. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's something bigger here that I can't quite put my finger on. And I'm not a religious person by any stretch of the imagination. So that makes it even harder. I think for me going mm -hmm. I don't know what's tapping into this, but as you said, it, I do, I do. And again, we don't even know if the big bang is really exactly what happened. You know, I've dove into that quite a bit, but it, we know it's expanding. That's what we do know. So it's like, uh, let's yeah. get on and move right along with it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We might hit some interference every now and then, but, uh, that's when we get to grow. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> thanks so much for talking about the the suicide thing mm -hmm. you were talking about earlier too um with that bill situation um yeah that happened can can you talk a little bit or about Hamlin? yeah yeah how that can impact a team if they even witness a traumatic event that that can cause some tra and maybe i'm 
saying this wrong, but I would imagine that would cause trauma just by seeing something that would put it can. Absolutely. Years ago, I wrote an article. It's called, uh, it was uh, sports injuries, throwing a stone in a pond. <laughs> and what I meant by that was everybody's clipping along, having a good time, watching their son or daughter, their teammate, the, the kid they're coaching, everything's going great. And I remember years ago, I was at a scrimmage and a kid got tackled out of bounds and everybody was screaming, screaming. And I looked down and his lower leg was just sticking out like that double compound fracture. And I can still see the image in my mind. And it must have been 30, 40 years ago, right? Yeah. So the idea of the article was that we're all sitting around this nice, cool pond, hanging out, having a good time. And someone takes this huge boulder and just throws it in the middle and it makes this huge splash and those waves reverberate to all points around that pond. And, and I've, one of the first concussion athletes I worked with back in 2007, he was a really talented all state high school quarterback, had a concussion, wasn't playing well. And um, so they benched him to help him. And I went to do a parent talk at their school and I was talking about how I work with injuries. And the next day, this dad calls me, and uh, we got him in. He responded very well to the EMDR work. There's a specific protocol used with concussions. And so his high school is like five minutes from my house. So I wanted to go see his first game back. And his dad told me where he'd be standing by the fence. And, and uh, so I get down there and he says, well, I told the coach to start a real simple playbook so he can work his way back in. I said, why? Because, well, he just had a concussion. I said, your son's fine now. I said, this is, this is yours. This is, he said, well, maybe I need to come see it. Cause I'm terrified of it happening again. Yeah. And I hear that a lot, or I've had, I've had parents bring their kid in and I'll, if it's a ACL and they're, they're younger, sometimes I'll let the parents sit in the first 10 minutes when I teach brain functioning and I show images of the brain and all that. And they'll go, God, I wish I would have had you 25 years ago. Well, why? Well, I tore my ACL. This is bringing up all kinds of stuff. So these, the waves reverberate around. Now you go to the, that Monday night football game, Buffalo and Cincinnati, and he's laying on the field, dying, getting CPR. And guys are crying. Now the Bills won yesterday, so they're using this yeah. as inspiration and motivation. But I wonder after the season um, ends if it might start bubbling up. And I, I know some players on the Bills team, and I sent them a message. <clears throat> and I said, if you or any of your teammates need some e local EMDR work, I can help connect you with resources in Buffalo. And they said, man, thank you so much. Now, right now, they're in the playoffs and all that, but it might come up at some point, or some of the coaches it might affect, or the medical staff it might affect. Yeah, that's intense. I I think of... um. I, again, I was a skydiver, so you get familiar with a bunch of base jumpers at the same. That's what I wanted to do initially. I'm going to get enough skydive so I can go base jump. But those Jeez. guys are always like, um, yeah, people are going to die. You're going to see it all the time. But it, some of them, you know, they they hear of a skydiver just getting hurt once and they never skydive ever. And kind of like a pole breaks. Oh, man, I didn't even know that could even happen. I'll never pole vault ever again. And then others... So, like those base jump guys, like my friend died and I carried him out, but yeah, that's the sport and it happens and they leave. So can you identify the differences between that? Is that just a type of sensitivity or is this, are we just talking resilience here at this point? I think it's how we're wired up. Cause there's some people, like you said, that they're up on the cliff and someone jumps up and they're, 
squirrel suit, flying squirrel suit or, you know, whatever they're, they're, whatever doesn't work and they go crashing into the side of the cliff. And I think I would be one of those that would go, no, thank you. I don't think I would do it in the first place, Yeah, <laughs> but I, I think I'm, I've had a lot of injuries. So my brain's kind of, you know, I've had three knee surgeries, broken arm, shoulder injuries, you know, and I think mine is wired up to where I'd go. No, but then there's some who, you know, the, the adrenaline and the resilience and maybe their limbic system isn't as activated as someone else's. So, well, you look at, um, oh man, there's a guy, the he does climber? it. He does mountain climbing, but he travels all over the earth. You talk about Alex Honnold, the free solo guy. No, he's oh, no. an Asian dude that, that puts on it's free earth or something like that, where he talks about guys who survive uh, landslides, snow, uh, okay. snow, snow, what do you call them? Uh, avalanches. Avalanches. Thank yeah. you. Uh, or someone who was kayaking down these waterfalls and got stuck underwater and, and died and they had to revive them. And, and all those guys get right back up and do it all over again. They're just wired differently. Yeah. I'll text you the name of the show. It's, it's unbelievable. I'll, I'll check wish some out. new episodes have come out. It's, it's amazing, but they're wired differently where he almost died. You know, he did die, but okay, let's, let's go back. Yeah, I, I looked into that a bit because I was trying to understand why I would be willing to put myself at that kind of risk, kind of too. And there's a great book called, it's either Stealing Fire or Catching Fire, but it's all about these flow states. And when these guys are doing that, kind of like I talked about earlier, when you jump out of a plane or off of a cliff, you're like, have to be in this moment. There's no other place and your thoughts mm -hmm. can calm down and, yeah. and you're there. <clears throat> mixed with the adrenaline and everything I was like everything has to go right and because everything feels that way there's no other place to get that between jumping off mm -hmm. of these things but then the issue always becomes like in all of these things I've read is that well what's next now I got to do a flip off the cliff before I go now I got to do three flips off the cliff now I got to see how far I can land or I got to and it, it just never ends and so for me for me personally I was like how do I how can I be in the moment that much without having to jump off of a cliff? <laughs> my, well, you know, these perspective guys changed. What comes up for me though, is they do such a remarkable job of preparation. Yeah. They take care of all their distractions before they hike up to the 25,000 foot peak or jump off of this or kayak down this. And so when they're in that moment, like you said, they are 100% present. There's no interference. Right. There's no distractions. They're prepared. They know what the water is going to be like. They know what the ice is going to be like or yeah. whatever it is. And they have a skill level that I couldn't even comprehend, <laughs> right. you know? So there's a confidence yeah. level that goes with that. Yeah. Now the one guy the guy that, that hosts the show was, they were, I think they were snowboarding and he, he caught in an avalanche and he had his helmet cam on, you know, and he's riding this avalanche, riding this avalanche. And it, at the last minute, you know, cause when you get under a foot of snow, you're done, you know, right. at the last minute, it just flipped him out, just flipped him out. And he sat there and his buddies go, is that you? You know, it was a miracle that he survived, but he said for the first time it affected his, his confidence in himself yeah. and he had to step away and rebuild that confidence and then come back in again. Yeah. And uh, he did. Jeb Corliss was, is a pretty popular base jumper, but he would say you have skill and you have luck and, and they the both buckets are full. So you better put enough 
like energy or water into the skill bucket because your luck's going to run out. You only have a certain amount. And he said, that's uh, just what happens with that sport. It's so yeah. early on for some reason, he's like beginners <clears throat> seem to have a little bit more luck. You're just like, I can't believe they survived that. Survived that. Yeah. yeah. And then, yeah, it's just how it goes. Like climbing El Capitan. I just free, free climbing El Capitan. I just can't imagine. No, that that I don't know if you saw Free Solo, that Alex Honnold documentary, but in, in, insane. My hands were sweating the whole time I yeah. watched. It. <laughs> when he was it's on wild. the when he was on the wall, my hands were sweating. It's like my brain thought I was there. <laughs> That's insane. Um, can can I ask uh, two more questions before we go? Sure. Um, so I I reached out to I do this thing every Monday called Mental Health Monday where I just something I learned this week and I let people ask questions and mm-hmm. two of the questions that came up, um, one was on PTSD and how to cope with that. And is this a, a lot of the stuff we talked about earlier with the processing trauma type of thing? I know we probably already covered this, but I just wanted to make sure I, I'm giving him the, the answer that can help. Mm-hmm. Or so for processing PTSD or how to cope with it is step one, finding someone who can help you like someone like you or is there things they can do at home depending i mean there's severities right so that would be i I had someone contact me for a new appointment last week i'm I'm actually seeing them this week and uh i told them i sent them a link on youtube it's a relief stress and anxiety guide to meditation that takes 20 minutes it's absolutely wonderful and it's really good for just calming the brain and the nervous system down um you can journal, get a journal of empty and just write. It's called stream of consciousness writing where you'll start writing and your hand will start off with one kind of handwriting and then it'll get more animated and then it'll calm down and, and do that several nights a week, every night a week, if you need to, until the pen stops. Like after my dad died in 1986, there was a lot going on around his estate and all that. And I woke up one morning at like four in the morning, I couldn't go, I couldn't go back to sleep. And I got up, went to my breakfast room table, pulled my notebook out and started writing. And I wrote 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 and I wrote. And when my hand stopped writing, I'd written 26 pages. Wow. But I downloaded all that information. I can't tell you how much better I slept after that. Yeah. So, you know, learn, learn things to self-soothe, you know, go for walks, listen to music, take your dog to the park, uh, go watch sunrises and sunsets, go play with puppies. You know, I've had, I've had special forces guys that don't believe in the word vulnerability. And I have to retrain that, that it's not a sign of weakness. It's courageous. It's, 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 it's courageous. Absolutely. But I start them out, you know, go find a place that has puppies and sit on the floor and let puppies crawl all over you or watch, watch a sunrise in the morning. Those can't hurt you, you know, but find ways to soothe that nervous system, fill the tank. Um, as, as we're and, talking about this, so can I can I ask like, there's a difference between soothing and numbing, right? Can you differentiate mm-hmm. those two though, so people don't fall into, hey, alcohol does make me feel better, but <laughs> yeah, but that's not soothing. That's like you said, that's that's it's that's like depression. That. That's exactly. numbing. Uh, something, let's say, that's life giving. Life giving. I'm gonna go smoke three joints is not life giving. That's life numbing. I'm gonna go wow, I'm feeling bummers today. I'm going to go drink two bottles of wine. That's not life-giving. That's life-numbing. Watching a beautiful sunrise on the Texas coast is life-giving to me. 
You know, gotcha. yesterday I took my dog <laughs> to the dog park and she loves to run. So my wife will go to the one side of the park and I'll go to the other and she'll just run back and forth. She runs her wind sprints and then we go finish our walk. That's life giving to me. Okay. You know, my wife and I have been on a real big cooking run lately. We put on some good music and I chop and she mixes or, you know, whatever it is and go walk the beach you know that that's my tank filling place yeah journaling uh this medical relieving stress and anxiety meditation I, I listen to it all the time hmm. talk to people reach out and then if you feel like i don't think like have you heard this um prince harry has this new book out called uh spare yeah i saw the book i haven't read it yet though i got it from my wife she said it's amazing but he's being vulnerable he's talking about doing emdr work and therapy and all you know all the traumas he's been through and then there's another group of this toxic max masculinity thing that's coming up about you know you got to be hard angry men and well it's just taking us back to that stoic hard it's it's so destructive but i love the fact that that prince harry or harry now is being vulnerable about there's a different way of being a man in the world you know yeah. And I grew up that way. You know, I went through a lot of hell when I was a kid and injuries and a dysfunctional family. And when I finally broke, you know, I went to a, a self-help workshop and I finally broke, I had so much grief in there, yeah. you know, and I have guys come to see me that they'll be sitting on that sofa back there and they'll start tearing up and they'll look out the window and they'll shut down and go, what's wrong? They go, I hate to cry. You know, I always cry. I cry at movies. I cry about dogs. I said, that's a good thing. Yeah, it's okay to be a sensitive, vulnerable man. That's so old school. Like I had a, a gymnast who couldn't do release skills on high bar. He couldn't let go. Right. Yeah. And he's one of those that's crying and I hate, you know, I hate crying and my friends make fun of me. And I said, Oh, it's hard to let go. Huh? And it clicked that, that, high, that the high bar in gymnastics was the metaphor his brain was giving him. I can't let go of my life. I can't be vulnerable in my life. And it's not letting me let go. He came back two weeks later and he was doing all his release skills on high bar. Wow. Isn't that crazy? That's insane. Yeah. <laughs> but he got the metaphor, you know? Yeah. What, what I keep thinking about though, and I've, I've struggled with this trying to be more vulnerable too, is you were saying, my friends will make fun of me if I cry. Or I read, uh, one of Brene Brown books where she talked about how she only used to talk about vulnerability with, with females because that's where she thought it was. And some guy came up to her afterwards, like guys deal with shame and vulnerability just as much, if not maybe even more, because if I don't do this, my wife's going to make fun of me, <laughs> you know, because I'm not mm, being wow. um, a man kind of a thing. <clears throat> mm -hmm. So if you deciding to be vulnerable and we've been talking about connection as well, is this part of, of that transition phase where maybe these people aren't going to like who I am, or you realize that they're not helping you or you have to, there's just a lot here, right? Or yeah. just set up boundaries and go. Hey, it sounds man, like this... a whole nother call for us. Yeah, least. I know. This is yeah. kind of deep. But it's, uh, you know, you've got to find like another wise mentor of mine. And if I said this, he says, Robert, you've got to sur surround yourself with like-minded others. And I don't think he meant just like-minded, but like-spirited and similar mm -hmm. character. And, and so, you know, I have friends who will be sitting around talking and I look around the table and, you know, we'll, everybody has tears going down their, their, their face. And sometimes they're happy tears and sometimes they're not. But 
I don't, I wouldn't want to be sitting at a dinner table with a bunch of friends and I get emotional about something. Everybody, oh, excuse me. And they get up and leave. No, I surround myself with people where that's okay. Yeah. And I wouldn't have it any other way because that's, that's who I am authentically. Yeah. Not that I run around crying all the time, but if something moves and I'll tell you, Sean, at this stage of my life, most of the time when I cry, they're happy tears. Yeah. <laughs> and I've learned to follow those happy tears. It's like a, a roadmap telling me where I'm supposed to go next. And I always mark them in my mind. What just happened to cause it? And what am I feeling? And do more of that. Yeah. Huh. I like that. Use that as a roadmap. And, and I, and I only brought it up because we still live in that culture you know, sure and do. so if people are wanting to try and go this way, or I, I'd imagine if people are listening to this type of podcast, they're, they're wanting to go, how do I, how do I be more authentic? How do I be more vulnerable? How do I be more myself? And they are surrounded by maybe a group of friends who are like that, like can, it, they could be the, uh, the spark for change within their friends too, or they maybe they need new friends at this point. Like, I don't, I don't sometimes really know. We have to pull, we, sometimes we just have to pull weeds, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. They, 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 and again, it's not that you're better than them. It's just that that doesn't belong in your garden anymore. You're trying to grow this <laughs> magnificent yeah. garden and you got people that don't want you to be vulnerable. Yeah. Wouldn't work for me. Huh? I love so that. Pull weeds, <laughs> pull, pull some weeds if you need to love um, them, but you just don't get to come into my garden anymore. <laughs> I like that a lot, actually. Uh, this will be the last question that I All appreciate. Right. Um, uh, a guy, a guy asked, as a coach, how do you handle a situation if you suspect there's an issue with an an athlete or a parent? And I know we've talked about this, I think, in our first podcast a little bit, but um, and I don't know what the issue is he was talking about exactly, so that might change it a little bit. But um, if if there's an issue with the athlete that's being caused by the parent, like how how do you navigate that? I think the younger the athlete is, the easier it is to address. <clears throat> if you've got a 10, 11, 12 year old kid, it's kind of easy to say, Hey, can you stay after practice for a minute? You know, I want to talk about a couple of things. Um, as they get older, you know, you want the parent ideally to become less and less involved in their athlete's life. Uh, unfortunately, they still muddy the water sometimes. Um, you know, that's a tough one because a lot of times if they're that kind of parent, they're going to get defensive. If a coach right. says, I need you to back off a little Johnny or Susie, they might, well, we're just going to go find another team. We're just going to go somewhere else. Uh, like I was at a, a high school baseball game. My son was playing in a tournament and a dad sat in a chair right behind the dugout, berating his catcher son the whole game. Wow. Yeah. The whole game, you know, and, uh, I finally went over and said something to him and he got irate and, you know, nowadays he probably would have picked a fight with me. This was quite a few years ago, but, yeah. um, it's, that's a whole nother podcast, man. This yeah. is a complicated, we'll put it, a pause it's complicated on that, because, <laughs> you know, it's, I think I'm just going to say it this way. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. I think it, I think you have to work your tail off to find ways to be a good, better parent, you know, yeah. like for example, when I was a kid, my parents believed in spanking and they didn't spank, they wailed. And my wife said, when we have kids, we're not going to spank. So we, you know, we had to read, uh, raising children you can live with, which is a great book for parents. 
uh, about escalating leverage, leverage in your relationship with your kids. And we learned how to, how to raise our kids without ever laying a hand on them. And they're respectful and they're humble and they're big hearted and they're kind and they're, they're go after what they want in life. And we didn't beat the crap out of them, you know? Yeah. Uh, but sometimes parents who are invasive, intrusive or abusive, they'll defend that. This is, this is my kid. This is my family. I'm going to do it this way. So as a coach, you got to be real careful, especially nowadays, you know, with parents beating up coaches and refs at games and parents are getting out of hand, man. Yeah. So you just got to be smart and, and, you know, maybe at the start of the season announce it that, you know, if we, we were looking for interference, we grades, are they taking care of their schoolwork? How's their relationships at home? And if we, if there's problems, come talk to us about it. And if we see problems, we're going to talk to you. And if you name it at the first of the season, and it's just kind of part of the plan, then it opens the door for you to be able to do that. That's a good idea. Like an expectation sheet of, or essentially you're setting boundaries up, right? Right at the beginning. This is from the, from the get-go. Yeah, yeah. So they know their expectations. Do you yeah. do things or uh, talks with parents too? All the time. Uh, I love parent talks. Yeah. That's one of my favorite talks that I do. Not yeah. just one-on-one, -on -one, but you do groups like if, if you wanted. I was at the Apple store yesterday and this dad comes up and goes, are you Mr. Andrews? And I said, yeah. He goes, I'm so-and-so. You came and talked to our high school parents a couple of years ago. That's I said, fantastic. wow, that was a long time. He said, would you come back? And I said, you bet I would. Good. Yeah. yeah, I love it. Yeah. And I keep working on it. You know, I keep working. I was in Brooklyn, New York doing a, I did a parent talk with a group of gymnastics parents up there and it's just great information, man. It really yeah. is. Cool. Well, I won't take any more. I got to thank you so much for all of this. Um, uh, how can people reach out to you if they want to? You have a great book that I'm constantly recommending on Amazon. Thank and you very much, by the way. I appreciate yeah. that. Uh, you can do a Google search of Robert Andrews Sports Psychology, uh, the Institute of Sports Performance in Texas. Um, my email is robertandrews at tinssp.com. Uh, do a Google search of Robert Andrews and sports. I usually pop up pretty quick on there. Cool. Well, but I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, always thanks. Again, this is always fun, man. I appreciate it. Yeah. Cool. Uh, on Amazon, on his website, go check it out. All the links are in the description of this below. Um, I hope you guys are having a good day. Remember, life's meant to be experienced, and curiosity will get you there. I'll see you in the next one. <laughs>